Thank you, Chris. Um, you know, one of the things I love about preaching is that I can stand up here and I can look out and see people. And every time I look at a person, I can think of the wonderful things that they've done for the Lord and they've done for other people. I just look out and there's so many memories of good things that I see. Um, and this morning, we're, we're looking in our Being Human series at what it means to be made in the image of God. And particularly... Um, about to do with our relationships with other people, and particularly the people of God. But welcome to you all, welcome at home, whether you're in the UK or even if you're abroad, that makes us sound very grand, doesn't it, international audience. Um, and I pr just pray that God will really bless us and speak to us this morning. I've, I've, been, I've been in quite a lot of self-examination mode this week, as I always am, actually, <laughs> when, when you start studying the Word of God. And I just pray that God will really help us to understand what He really wants for us as His body and as Christians. But we're going to start with a little quiz question. Uh, so if we can have the picture on the screen, please. Um, who can name this famous volleyball? Wilson! Nobody will get that reference if you haven't seen the film it comes from, which is Castaway. And uh, Wilson's co-star is Tom Hanks, thank you, as Chuck. Now, if you haven't seen the film Castaway, it's well worth a look. Um, Wilson became very famous after this. He actually has his own actor's profile on IMDb, uh, which states his height as being 0.23 meters, and it states all the other roles that he's been in. Um, but he became famous because the film was about uh, this guy, played by Tom Hanks, called Chuck, who's a bit work-obsessed. He doesn't really take care of his relationships very well. And then he is the sole survivor of a plane crash left on a, an island in the middle of, of the Pacific. Nobody knows he's alive. And he's, he's uh, marooned there for a number of years. And in that time, as you can imagine, he goes almost mad with the isolation. One of the things that saves him is this volleyball. Because he smears a face on it, and it's a Wilson sporting goods volleyball, so he calls the ball Wilson. How many of you, own up now, have named an inanimate object? I had a plant, yes, come on, those hands, put them up. I had a plant once I called Douglas because I dropped a history book by William Douglas on him. Um, so, and he survived, so I called him Douglas. Anyway, um, so Wilson becomes Chuck's friend. He talks to him when he's got nobody else to talk to. And I won't spoil the story for you if you ever watch it, but there is a moment of really heart-rending <laughs> heart grief when he and Wilson get separated. And it's actually so great, his grief, that it almost induces him to give up all hope. Because as human beings, we need other people. We need them so powerfully that if there is no actual person available, we will even turn to inanimate objects and we'll give them human qualities so that we can stay sane. We crave love. We love fiercely, even when the object of our love is unworthy or uncaring. And that's because we were created that way. It's a huge part of our God-given identity 
that we are made for relationship. In fact, it's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. You see, the Bible tells us that God is love. In and of himself, in his very being, he is love. But love isn't just something that floats about in the air. It doesn't exist unless you have something or someone to love. So how could the eternal God be love even before he created anything? The answer, of course, is that God is Trinity. Three in unity with each other. One God in three persons. And he has existed for eternity in a love relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God didn't need us, um, in, didn't need to create us in order to love or to be loved because in himself, he's always had that mutually satisfying, loving, honoring, self-giving relationship to delight in. So an important, an important part of God making us like himself in his image is that we were designed to need people and to live in loving community with them. And as so often in this series, we can go right back to the very start of the Bible to see this theme emerge. Genesis 1 and 2 show us that we were made for three types of relationship. The first one is relationship with God. He's our creator, and so we're totally dependent on him for our very existence. He's the one who blesses us. He's the one who gives us our mandate and our purpose. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2. And he desires our love, our trust, our obedience. And if that relationship is not in place, we will try to find substitutes elsewhere. But just like a volleyball is not the same as a human being, <laughs> Those substitutes won't fully satisfy us. Augustine said hundreds and hundreds of years ago, Thou, talking about God, hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. The second relationship that it describes in the beginning of the Bible is the relationship with nature. It tells us that God has given us the authority to harness and develop and manage all the resources of this world for the good of all. He commissioned us to serve it and to care for it, to watch over it, to preserve it, with the same care and love that he took in making it. And this is a mutually dependent relationship because we have the capacity to enhance or to destroy the very planet that we rely on for our air, for our food, for our shelter, for everything. And then thirdly, it tells us that uh, uh, we were made for relationship with our fellow human beings. Genesis 1, 27, it says um, that in the image of God, he created them, man, male and female, he created them. And it closely links being made in the image of God with being made female and male. Now, I don't think this is just talking about sexual differentiation, because if it was, then that would apply equally to animals, who it says are not made in the image of God in the same way. I think it's implying that we are not isolated beings. We're not self-sufficient. Men and women are both made in the image of God and both need each other 
to fully reflect the image of God. Genesis 2, chapter 18 develops that thought in much more detail, that whole chapter actually. God has already placed Adam in the garden and um, in the, to work it and to care for it. And then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God has Adam survey and name all the animals he's created, but there is no helper fit for him to be found amongst them. And so God creates Eve, who to Adam's joy, and he declares, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, like him, one of him. Now, <laughs> women are clearly not an afterthought of God's. It wasn't like, oh, Adam's going to be a bit lonely. Let's create a woman. You only have to have a basic knowledge of anatomy to know that that's not true. Okay, the point of the story is that God wants Adam and us to clearly recognize a couple of things, okay? Firstly, no animal could alter the aloneness of Adam. But Eve was fit for Adam. And the Hebrew word there, neged, means corresponding to. So because of our sameness, the fact that we are human, the quality of relationships between human beings is of a different quality to that with other created beings. But also, I think it shows us that the differences between human beings are designed to make us understand that we rely on one another. Adam needs a helper. And that Hebrew word, Isa, in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, it means a counterpart who can supply strength in the area which we are lacking. Anthony Hoykemer explains it like this. He says, the words imply that woman complements man, supplements him, completes him, is strong where he be, may be weak, supplies his deficiencies, and fills his needs. Man is therefore incomplete without woman. And this holds for the woman as for the man. Woman, too, is incomplete without the man. Man su supplements woman, complements her, fills her, uh, fills her needs and is strong where she is weak. Now, that independence, interdependence, is obviously illustrated and expressed in marriage, as it was for Adam and Eve. Uh, it's clear in my marriage. Uh, Mark is good at saving money. I'm good at spending money. I do the cooking. He does the washing up. But of course, just remember, no one... No one can load the dishwasher properly except for him. <laughs> However, that does not mean that we have to be married <laughs> to be truly and fully human. Please hear me on this. The Bible gives great honor to singleness. And in fact, in some situations, singleness, Paul says, is better than marriage if you want to dedicate yourself fully to the gospel. No, what it means is that we human beings need one, need one another in all kinds of friendships and partnerships and fellowship to supply what is lacking in us. Variety and difference are a delight to God and a benefit to everyone when they are ex expressed in people who are united in their fundamental similarities. That 
was the gift and the future for human beings, which was ruined by sin. All of the three types of relationships that we were made for, with God, with nature, and with one another, have been perverted by sin. We now use the differences between human beings not as a source of mutual strength and enrichment, but as a way to criticize and divide us. It brings sourness to marriages, to workplace relations, to communities, to friendships. Instead of judging a person by their character, we judge them on the similarity of, our, of their background or their personality to ours. We divide ourselves into us and them. In the current crisis, let's call it a war, let's call it what it is, in Ukraine, we see glimpses of the image of God. The fact that all over the world there has been a, a feeling and a sympathy with uh, those who are suffering and countries being open-handed and welcoming to suffering people. But the misery has been caused by warped relationships, warped international relationships in this case, going back centuries, characterized by mistrust, ambition, the misuse of power, seeing people as pawns in a deadly game. Part of our role in the world is to bring people together. We need to say loud and clear with our actions and our words that we are all part of God's humankind. Your joys and pains are my joys and pains. It is up to each of us, I think, to work out how God wants us to do that in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in the wider world. John Donne, the poet, in the 17th century, lay sick in bed towards the end of his life, and through the window he could hear the church bells ringing for a funeral. And he wrote something became, which became a very famous poem. He said, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And he said, any man's death diminishes me because I am part of mankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. If you've cried like me this week <laughs> over things you've heard in the news, that's because, quite rightly, you are feeling part of the suffering that is going on. It is right that we feel pain for that. And it's, part, and it's also important that we turn that pain into prayer and into action. But even God's own nation of Israel <laughs> failed to relate to the rest of the world as God wanted. Instead of being a beacon of light and truth to draw people to God, a means of blessing to the nations, they divided the world into two groups, Jews and Gentiles, everyone else. They despised and they excluded those who needed God's mercy, 
to the extent that in Jesus' time, if a Jew married a Gentile, then their family would hold a funeral for them and regard them as dead. Ephesians chapter 2 is a passage which talks all about the gospel in terms of relationships. And it starts by um, describing the dreadful situation uh, for Gentiles like you and me. I presume most of us here are Gentiles. I don't know anybody here who has a Jewish heritage. I might be wrong. But most of us would fall into the, character, um, to the camp of being Gentiles, wouldn't we? And what that um, passage says... Um, is that before we knew Christ, we were in a state of hostility and division between us and God and between us and one another. The words used to describe our lack of relationship with God in that passage, and it might be useful for you to turn to that as we, as we go through this, because I don't have time to talk about it all in detail. But the words used in that passage to describe our lack of relationship to God and his people are grim ones. It's the words like separated, far off, alienated, strangers. In verse 14, Paul's talk, Paul talks about a dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And he's probably referencing there the wall in the temple at Jerusalem which barred Gentiles from entering the Jewish inner courts on pain of death, they've discovered the stone signs that were inscribed saying, any Gentile who comes beyond here, it's on your own head that you will be executed. But then Paul goes on to talk about Jesus' work of salvation as good news for broken relationships. He describes Jesus as the peacemaker and he says that now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, by reconciling us to the Father through faith in Jesus, what Jesus did was create one new man in place of the two, or a single new humanity, so that Jews and Gentiles in Christ are at peace with each other. Galatians 3.28 and Colossians 3.11, amongst other verses, spell out more implications that Jesus actually died to do away with all sexual, social, and racial barriers and distinctions on the cross. Anyone who is in relationship with Christ as Savior is equal in his sight. And therefore, all Christians can share a special, restored kind of relationship with one another. And then Paul goes on to describe what this new humanity really is and what it looks like in verses 17 to 22. He gives us three images of what it now means for our identity and our relationships to be reconciled with God and with others in Christ. First of all, he says we are now fellow citizens in God's kingdom. 
which means that no matter how far we move from the place that we're born, we belong to an international, supernatural kingdom. And that is more important than any national identity. Secondly, he says we are members of God's household. And he is the head of our household, and we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, as Chris referenced earlier. Do you realize that brethren, meaning brothers and sisters, is the commonest word used for Christians in the New Testament? Now, my particular human family in the UK particularly seems to be dwindling every year and is getting quite small. But I have a whole bunch of brothers and sisters anywhere I go in this world. And the third picture he uses is that we are being built together as God's temple, the place where he dwells and chooses to make himself known. So as long as we are securely tied into Christ, we will be securely tied to one another in unity, just as the cornerstone of a building ties together two walls. Belonging is a big word these days. I was just talking to somebody about it this week. We want to know where we belong and who are our people. But the fact is that if you are a Christian, you belong to God first and foremost, and nothing can separate you from his love because Christ has reconciled you to God. You might not even have known before you were a Christian that you were in hostility with God, but that's what sin does. But Christ has dealt with that sin. God is for you. You have a father whom you can talk to at any time. He's with you wherever you are by his Holy Spirit. And the fact that you belong to an invisible, invincible church made up of all those who have ever been saved and are known by God as his means that we share an unbreakable bond that comes from being born again. And there's no going back into the womb if you don't like the look of us. <laughs> but the challenge to us is this. That is a reality. But too often the church of Christ has not looked like a new humanity. Living in unity, love and peace. We are called as those who've been made right with God to relate to it and one another in a way that visibly reflects those invisible truths. So I'd like to finish this morning by asking myself and you to think about some of the practical ways, maybe, that God might be calling us to do better with that. So which of these jumps out at you? I have to say they all jumped out at me, which is why they're here. <laughs> First of all, let's not tolerate barriers. I think it offends God if we put up walls that Jesus removed. We must not put out signals that certain types of people are not welcome here or making people feel awkward when they come. Let's go further. Let's seek out the people whom we cannot imagine being friends with in a million years as well as those we naturally click with. Let's cross those racial, social and cultural divides like Jesus did and enrich our life as a result. 
Secondly, let's look out for the lonely. I think this is me and Karen Newton when we get old. <laughs> look out for the lonely. You may be surprised how many there are. <laughs> it's not always the people you might think either. In fact, let's have a show of hands here in the auditorium, I think. Um, don't worry, the cameras aren't going to go on you, but um, put up your hand if you've ever felt lonely in church. That's at least a third of us. It's probably more. So let's consider who might appreciate not eating alone every night this week. Let's try and think which busy person might appreciate being asked just to hang out instead of being praised for all the good work they do. Let's look beyond the surface. Thirdly, let's disagree well with one another. In any family, disagreement is inevitable, but broken or distant relationships are not. I recognize, being very British culturally, despite having mixed heritage, uh, that most of us would rather chew off our own hands than have a difficult uh, conversation with somebody. But the Bible says there is a different way, the way of love. If we're not happy about something, we should go to that person concerned rather than all the people we think will agree with us that we're in the right. But let's not do that until we've checked our feelings and our motives and until we've thought about how we would like them to talk to us if the position was reversed. If there is someone in church that you have been avoiding, which is easy to do in a church our size, if you've been avoiding them for days, for weeks, for months, for years, well, go and do whatever lies in your power to put things right with them. It's not wholly up to you, but it's up to us to do what we can. And let's have a predisposition towards giving people the benefit of the doubt, especially when we don't know all the facts. Kindness is a very underestimated fruit of the Spirit. Fourthly, let's find and take our place in the body. This is not a thing about rank or importance. This is about finding the place where God wants to put you and arrange you in the body so that the body is done good. If too many of the essential parts of the body of Christ are not fulfilling what God wants them to do, then the church will eventually be paralyzed. The other parts will all be put under too much strain. <laughs> do you know your capacity, your gifts, and your calling and are you using them for the good of others as God directs you? It's not for me to tell you what that is. Listen to God. He says you are an essential member of this living, breathing organism. So don't think you have nothing to contribute. And don't worry, he's not asking you to do it all. That's the whole point of a body with different organs. <laughs> and finally, control yourself. <laughs> I've been a driver for many years, and we all know that if we've been driving a long time, bad habits creep, creep in. 
And it's the same with our relationships. Sometimes we might need extra refresher lessons. I'm being reminded by God almost daily at the moment to shut my big gob every now and then and listen. (laughs) Over time, we tend to get grumbly. We get over-opinionated. We get cross when we think that we or our ideas are being passed over. Have you ever noticed um, that passage, which is always read at, at weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, the characteristics of love, a lot of them are phrased quite negatively. Love is not this. And that's because we all suffer from impulses and attitudes and behaviors that we need to reject and exercise self-control over. In fact, I think our ability to do that is one way of gauging well how we are cooperating with the Holy Spirit in our life. Just take a look sometime at that passage and other New Testament passages, which basically say we need to value brotherly love over the right to vent. (laughs) And we need to fight for unity more than we need to prove that we're in the right. You know, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I have spoken quite bluntly this morning because I love you and I want myself and I want us to better reflect the image of God as a body of believers. We cannot be a light and a blessing to others if people see the way we in the church treat each other and conclude that we are just a bunch of hypocrites. How many times have you heard that? This is missional. John Stott wrote a really good commentary on Ephesians, and in his commentary he says, I wonder if anything is more urgent today for the honor of Christ and for the spread of the gospel than that the church should be and should be seen to be what by God's purposes and Christ's achievement it already is, a single new humanity, a model of human community, a family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their father and love each other, the evident dwelling place of God by his spirit. Only then will the world believe in Christ as peacemaker. Only then will the world believe in Christ the peacemaker. Only then will God receive the glory due to his name. In John 13, 35, Jesus says that the quality of our love for one another should be enough to show the world that we are followers of Jesus. Let's fight for unity and celebrate our differences. Let's daily put aside the sinful need to have our own way and be independent. And let's love one another with the same outward-facing, expensive love that we've been shown by God. Let's strive to see the image of God in all people, and particularly our brothers and sisters, and let's help them to see it and bring it out too. Let's pray. There's a time when we look at the cross and 
it's a time for repentance. A time for seeing our lack in the abundance of the love that Jesus showed on that cross. Lord, I am so conscious of it in myself. And I pray for each one of us that we will be able to receive such love from you, to know that magnificent compassion and care that you have for us, the patience that you have for each one of us. And that we let ourselves be filled with that and out of the outflow of it, to love others. We pray, Lord, that you will make us a single new humanity in action as well as in truth. We pray that those who come into this church or anything to do with this church and will say, these people are followers of Jesus. I can tell because of the way they love each other and the way that they love others. Lord, we thank you that you never give up on us. Help us when we are hurt or when um, things go badly wrong. Help us never to give up on being part of humanity and being part of your body. And Lord, we thank you that your plan is to change the world through us. That weight doesn't rest on our shoulders alone. It is a joint activity. And Lord, help us to be those who do bring your kingdom here on earth, as in heaven, together. In Jesus' name, amen.